Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 22, Nuclear War. coming nuclear war. You've all noticed it's hotting up, haven't you? Do you think it's serious or is it just a 1984 Big Brother scare? It's serious. Right, we're going to talk about what it means to us because we have no control over the development of it. So luckily, we have a red pencil today, not a black one. Red being the colour of life itself. We know that when we think in symbols, we save an awful lot of words. And I'm looking forward to the time when I can do a drawing and don't need to speak. Now that is a, a letter V. It's been used for thousands of years to symbolise the process. It is a great word saver. In the ancient world, they did drawings to economize on words in two ways. First, to economize in time, and second, to conceal significances from the people that can't read the symbol. I put a V there, which from the bottom would mean to develop by opening out. But coming down to this point here means to involve I'm going to put a square on the bottom there because you know squares represent bricks and a degree of stability I call Freemasons unreliable that represents a very good, honest, true square person fit for social living now there is a process whereby descending spirit becomes progressively more and more dense. Dense really means judging itself. The den in dense means judgment. And becoming dense means increasing the number of judgments we make inside ourselves. Beyond the V is the infinite. I'll put one of my favorite words up there. If somebody can pronounce it for me, I would be very glad. Perhaps Hanukkah can do it. I'll pay you on. Well, it means the boundless, but it also means the alphabet is a privative. It means the not payron, and payron means not rationalizable, not definable. So beyond the V, we have the alphabet, the undefinable, illimitable power which by a process of internal operation produces manifestation. Now, its first manifestation here, we represent with a circle to show definition has begun. We will call it the area of ideation. Now, idea is Greek for form, so ideation means a formative process. And form is determined by circumscription. So the alpheiron has made itself a peiron, or rational process, by pi ratio turning upon itself, so defining a situation. The first thing produced is the eidetic field. It is an infinite field of formative processes. I'm going to represent that one in a little more complicated way to show what happens. All points are represented by one point. The point in the circle stands for all conceivable points in all conceivable circles. If I were to take the symbol 
Dominion philosophy of the ether Akasha. I would have to dot it all over like this. Now, I don't know whether you're very patient, but I'm not allowed to stop dotting this until there is no more space left. And it is very time consuming. Are you becoming impatient yet? Or can you tolerate this kind of thing? Now, if I get threads, very fine one, and start dotting in between the dots like this. I've now got black dots amongst the red dots. This is going to symbolize for us later two different ways of living. The red way, which is spontaneous, and the black way, which is considered. No act is undertaken by a black dot without careful consideration of its possible outcome. And the black dot path is called left-hand pathway and belongs to very, very clever intellectuals who study, I'm getting impatient yet, who study all the formal possibilities. Whilst the red dots represent, I think I'll put the black dot in the middle of that red dot. The red dots symbolize spontaneous processes. Unconsidered, immediate leaps of life force into self-manifestation. But in the ancient teachings, it says very clearly that the one dot in the middle of this circle is an economic expression of the many dots in this one. This one represents the ether, the arkasha, the absolutely uncased, represented in a case, because if we don't enclose it, we don't know where to look. But when we do the circle, we are to rub out the circle in our mind and retain the location of it. Throughout infinite space there are lots of little dots. And there are two kinds, spontaneous immediate impulses and considered formulations. The spontaneous ones are called right-hand path and the considered ones are called left-hand path. Funnily enough, the right-hand path tends to define the left-hand path is naughty. And the naughty little dots, the black ones, tend to define the spontaneous red ones as not very knowledgeable. So there's no difference, really, in mutual condemnation. But the ones called black have been called evil, and the ones called red have been called good. We'll see why a little later. Now, the circle we have down at the top there is an ideational one. And there is a word, the Hebrew word Torah, which means law, and there is also a Sanskrit equivalent. That one is going up, and try this one. Which is the same word disguised with a D for a T and an H and an M inserted, Dharma. Now that's the disguised form of the word Torah, cosmic law. The ideational world is full of form, and all the forms are reciprocally interpenetrating like this. I won't try your patience by drawing them all over the page. You mentally extend this to cover the whole page, and that represents the way all forms at ideational level are mutually interpenetrating. Now you know this is true of the ideas in your own mind. Man is a microcosm of the big universe, a macrocosm. The ideas in your mind continuously interfere with the other ideas in your mind. So you can't truly represent an idea process in your mind by saying one idea is totally distinct from another idea, because if you try to define a single idea you have to use words belonging to other ideas to define the one you're trying to define. So in fact, even at the level of the human being, the ideational process is one of mutual interpenetration of all ideas. The Japanese term you all know, and some people think it's rather a funny word, ji ji mu individual 
a firm individual, a firm substantialized powers consolidated life. That means the mutual interpenetration of all ideational forces. Ideas are not nothing. You know what people just call ideas that do nothing. All ideas are formative powers, operative and busy in the universe and busy in the mind of man, and busy in the minds of insects and plants. Everywhere, ideational forces are busy energies. So, there you have the law, and the law is the form as laid down by the absolute bounds. Now, when the form is felt, instead of just seen as form, you go into another phase. In this phase, you have a possibility of enjoyment. I put the Hindu term for the enjoyment there. That's the hoga, that rhymes with yoga. So if you say yoga bhoga, you mean enjoying your yoga. If you just had yoga without bhoga, you'd be wasting your time. Now, the reason for the second thing is that when the first one appears, an infinite ideational field of itself, if you did not either like or dislike it, it would remain absolutely equable in its vibration. It would be like a continuous equable buzz. There'd be no differentiation in it. And therefore there could be no value judgment in it. The moment you talk about value judgment, you have entered into the field of liking and disliking in some degree. So the second circle represents liking disliking. I'll put a little plus on one side and a minus on the other for liking and disliking. Ideation, the energies of the ideas, are now looked upon by the Arpeiron itself, by the Absolute, as sources of possible enjoyment. Now Spinoza had the expression intellectual love of God. Intellectual is the ideational Love of God is the enjoyment aspect of contemplating the ideation. Now when you like something, you tend to do something about it. If you dislike it, you tend to do something about it, like push it away, or run away from it. So we then need a third circle. And this one represents activation, the will to act on the basis of the like and the dislike. And this is a process of involution. We are going to go down. Now the fourth stage, and I'm going to put a four there deliberately, because this four is tremendously important. He went forth from the absolute, means he stepped down from an infinite ideational process to an enjoyment of the content of that ideation, liking and disliking, to a will to action, so I will put a W in there for will, and to embody, to put that in the stabilized brick for, to embody the ideation which has been liked or disliked in an act of will. If liked, to construct, if disliked, to destroy. So in the fourth level, you are incarnate, you are embodied. Now, every person, every conscious being, every individual human consciousness is nothing but the Arpeiron, self-encapsulated, ideated, liked or disliked in some degree, and then willed into action, and so brought down to the fourth level of material, embodiment. And the step down is essential for the separation out of the ideational field. Remember in this Gigi Muge level, this mutual reciprocal interpenetration of all being, there is a Greek word for that which you can have, 
and you read that. Theo, for God, and the cast is here with an S, means the mutual interpenetration of all the gods. Now, when they're in total mutual interpenetration there, they are called gods. There is goods of radiation. But remember, they are intelligent powers. They're not just senseless energies vibrating. They are powers determined to ideate, that is, to formulate themselves. When they come down from that level to human beings in a spontaneous expression of communication, they are called angels, that is, messengers from above. Which at their own level, they are ideational, intelligent forces deliberately willing to be what they are. A square is willing to be square. A triangle is willing to be triangular. Now, when we come down into the realm of the material world, we have a peculiar thing to do, a turnabout. When we come down into it, we could begin to rise again and repeat this ascent in the reverse order. When we have incarnated in the body, to complete our evolution, we have involved in this side, we're now going to evolve on that side. In the physical body, to climb back to the ideational world, where all truth is, and then to become vibrantly responsive to the boundless arpeon, to become resonant with the absolute, we have to climb out in the reverse order. That means we have to substitute for physical, mechanical reactivity an act of will. And in that act of will, which is the ascending side of the V, we have to will to feel like and dislike, and that is called compassion. Compassion means together suffering. We have to identify with other beings, feel their joys, their miseries, by an act of will. Ordinarily, people at the physical level don't do that. You think other people's miseries are their business, and other people's joys are for envying, but they're not our business. But in order to climb back again to the absolute, we have to will, to feel, to ideate again. I'm going to put a double triangle up there for ideation, because it always implies a duality of the infinite absolute and the finite creature simultaneously co-presented. Now, number four is the danger place. Because as we come down from the ideational world, where all our ideas are totally mutually interpenetrating, and we start enjoying it, the enjoyment separates out the ideation. If you like one thing and don't like another, then instead of that reciprocal interpenetration, you separate off each zone of like or disliking. And you may have a zone of like and a zone of dislike and they are not coordinated. That is, of course, the ideal place for the clown. One red nose, one like, one dislike. <coughs> the word clown actually means to close on one's own. Close own is the word clown. If you stop your reciprocal mutual interpenetration and close, then you become a clown. You're the fool in the situation because in the closure you have deprived yourself of the information of the other beings with whom you were in reciprocal interpenetration. At the level of reciprocal interpenetration, dharmic ideation, you are actually a participant in omniscience. But as soon as you say, this is my own, or when you say, I am I, not you. The moment you exclude, you reduce your omniscience to a finite knowledge, and therefore deprive yourself of the efficiency that could be yours if you had this extra knowledge. Now, there is a very grave danger. At point four, 
you have come down and embodied. And when you're embodied, the stimuli come from outside and condition your thought process. If you tap yourself, the message comes from outside your skull. You can be extroverted and you can come to believe, as millions of people today do believe, in materialism. You can believe that only that which taps you from outside, touches you from outside, only that which taps upon you from outside is real. And that the thing that cannot touch you from outside is not real. And that's called materialism. Now, if you become materialistic and forget that you are a will with a like-dislike from an ideational field of infinity, you reduce yourself by your own acts of belief in your materiality to functionally a material being. That is to say, you become totally mechanical. All your responses will then be typically reactive to stimuli received from outside. Now, when that happens, the process of reaction on your part starts like this. That's going downwards, below the level of matter. By that I mean it goes below the level of your organized physical body. As you begin to believe in externality, and you begin to believe that only the external stimulus is real, then you, in that weird reality that you have built in your imagination, the external reality, you start breaking in bits because you make a judgment that is separate in every case of everything you encounter. So you actually analyze your whole being into lots of little bits and it was that kind of activity that gave rise to the theory of an atomism of Eucippus and Democritus which survived into the 19th century up to the splitting of the atom by science. Now, you see that what we've done, we've done a letter Y. Pythagoras used that Y as a symbol of the necessity for choice. The necessity for choice. When you come down this arm to point four, you either turn on that point and go upwards, and to do that you must slow down. You must stop and consider your position truthfully, internally, and say, am I really, merely a material <coughs> being? Or am I a being of will, of sentience, and ideational power of the absolute? And you have to say that. Now, if you say that, there is a reorientation at that point, a turn, so that you can go up that arm. You go down and up. Now, if you go up, you integrate yourself with your will, your compassion, and your pure universal ideation, and you find yourself to be not different from the Arpeyron. That is, you and the Absolute are not two separate beings, but you, as an individual, are a modality of that boundless infinite source of all being. And on the other hand, if you do not make that turn, that's called the metanoia, the change of mind, if you do not make that turn and define yourself as a spiritual being who came down, involved, in order to get the experience of the whole process, thus you become to fulfill all righteousness, to come down and then go up again. Because it is possible to identify with matter and I have known men that have done this. Funny enough, I've never known a woman that's done it, but I have known men that have done it, who have become so clearly intellectually articulate that they have cut their minds into bits. So their minds were full of accurate, formal expressions, but these expressions were all disparate. They were all separated out from each other, and there was no feeling relationship between all the ideas. Consequently, this way down is the way to annihilation. Omar called it annihilation waste. 
Because the further you go down there, the more your materialized intellect cuts its mental data into little bits like this until you become lost in what is called the abyss. Now the abyss is all the points that were in the ideational field before you started your process, but those same points are now disjoined from each other. You're not in the reciprocal interpenetration mode, so you actually have no understanding whatever. You're full of elements of knowledge, bits of separated ideas, but there's no liaison between the ideas. And what does it feel like? All the mystics describe this condition into which they have fallen in their process of self-investigation. They call it dry, they call it gritty, they call it granular. There's one scientist that goes on TV and he's delighted. And he jumps up and down behind his table with a granularity. And he looks very, very fiendish. The granularity. That means he thinks that he can control it by an analysis of the ultimate dissociated atoms of reality. But actually, there are no dissociated elements except in his imagination. His imagination creates conditions as if there were a true granularity universe for which the one turnus has no explanation. If ultimate reality is entirely granular, dry atomic dust, without a liaison force running through it, then there is no possibility whatever of gathering it together. So that a consciousness that has gone down that line in that way has brought itself progressively, and the more so, the more efficient its intellect, progressively to total dissociation of all the elements of its being. So it disintegrates. It falls into the abyss of annihilation's waste. All the elements that could have been gathered together if he got up the other arm, which could have restated the reciprocal interpenetration of being, which would have recognized the will, the compassion, the ideation of the universe there, as truly a function of one absolute power. How far do you go down to? Presumably you meant you by the photograph, is that right? Yeah? You meant you. How far can you go down before you start disintegrating? That depends on how far you identify with your success as a materialistic thinker. Now, if you've got only one element in you that doesn't believe in materialism, you will be saved. Only one is enough to save you. But if you became an absolute materialist, believing in discrete atom particles, granularity, dust, then you will not be able to turn back because you have identified. And will you hold that in your mind a moment? Because we can always redraw a symbol in another way. And I'm going to write it. Atma, that means spirit. Buddhi, that means intellect. And I'm going to put the Greek equivalent there, logos. That's cosmic reason. <coughs> Manas, that's your ordinary time mind. Karma, this is your desire nature, all locked on the appetite. And then we're going to put your physical body here. This is your physical body. Now we have two here, and we'll call those two the top pair. And we have two here called the lower pair, and they're all inside the body. Place those on your hand. Atma, buddhi, manas, karma, physical body, 
Nula. Yeah? Now, the Atma is eternal spirit and the Buddhi Logos is that level of individuation where all is reciprocally interrelated. So those are eternally there. So those cannot be lost. It is impossible to lose Atma and Buddhi. They are unlosable. Because the Logos is the Atma in self-modulation as form. The Spirit is the power that crucifies itself to make the Logos. And the Logos is that power of the infinite gathered together to make a reciprocal formal universe possible. And they are not two. They are two aspects of one fact of ultimate power. And they cannot be destroyed. But, if I were to say the individual being like this is encased in an ovoid aura of power like that and your identification is over the whole of that ovoid form that golden egg that golden egg of being then within that you have a smaller one and within that you have a smaller one now it is possible by the process we call identification to fascinate that is bind consciousness to any object upon which you care to focus to bind your consciousness on any object on which you care to focus now, if any of you have ever seen what is called a catatonic schizophrenic, you will know what this means in an extreme form. I have seen a man, catatonic, looking at the tip, like that, of a pen, and standing like that for hours. The record I know is 17 hours standing in one position looking at his finger like this. It's called monoideation one form of thought, one idea. It is possible to get stuck on that and every psychiatrist knows the phenomenon. This is a catatonic schizophrenia where all the other ideas that you might have thought about you can't think about because your consciousness is fascinated with that one point. And it is funny, dialectically, that the one-pointedness of the catatonic schizophrenic and the one-pointedness of an attained yogi are identical in every respect except one. That the catatonic schizophrenic is looking at a finite like that, but the attained yogi is looking at the whole as one. And that's the only difference. It's the same power of monoideation. Now, let's look at this. The Atma is spirit eternal, and we will call that which contains all of that, we will call it the Brahman, and that word is from a word meaning to extend, <coughs> means the infinite, and beyond that we have para, beyond, para Brahman, param Atman, that is beyond, it's called beyond even the Brahman, because the Brahman is considered as not focused upon the Atma, Buddhi, etc. But the para goes right through all of it and is as aware of the physical body as it is of the desire, the temperamentation, the cosmic logos and the spirit of the individual and the universal extension. Now, by identification, and this only means focus, and there are lots of fellows that have focused on an idea and been trapped. Even in the middle of a yogic exercise, especially where they have been pursuing individual power. They have a concept. Would you believe that one man told me just a couple of months ago that he was going to go and have the course on levitation? This is not a joke. He was going to pay, I think, $4,000 in order to levitate. And when he was levitating, he was going to go down the M56 
in the rush hour over the cars going like this to Memphis. No, he was serious. Can you believe it? He'd actually got the image in his mind. For $4,000 I can do this to delayed motors. Do you believe it's possible? Do you? Or do you think it's a joke? No, it is possible. It happens. It happened with Hitler, happened with Mussolini, happened with Hirohito, happened with Winston Churchill. He was an orator, not really a statesman. It can happen to anybody that they become monoideistic. And when they do, they're trapped. Not by a power other than themselves, but their own desire, karma, locking on their appetite. Their own desire locks in on the idea that I will be superior, I will be powerful, I will be this god or that goddess or whatever, and I will rule the world from my position. Hitler said, a thousand year Reich. At the time I thought, well, that's not very ambitious. A thousand years, who worries about a thousand years? It says in the Bible, a thousand years, there is one day in the eye of God, so why worry about today's rulership? Now he is no more. Or his disguise is a man running a sweets and tobacco and newspaper business in South America. <coughs> I don't believe that bit. <laughs> but I have been told it. Now, this identification is the key to bondage or freedom. If we identify with the finite, no matter what it is, for finite gain, Instead of going round, remember our diagram, instead of going like that, we go like that. As soon as we think of a finite characteristic as worthy of identification in the place of an absolute identification with the all, with our payroll, with the absolute, as soon as we think of the finite identification with on the downward path, towards the abyss. But we are saved absolutely if we think that's a very stupid thing to do because it's fundamentally untrue. There could not be a universe of little bits unless there were a liaison force. But the liaison force is up here in the absolute. The bitty universe, the granular, the atomic, down there, is a construct of an egoic mind trying to attain control over reality by manipulation of externals. Now let's take Atma and Buddha and describe a little more carefully. Atma, that's two words. The art part means absolutely crucified. Then to say that you know perfectly well there is no escape whatever from truth. And the ma part means an appetival activity. So already in the atma <coughs> is that duality that we represent in the word W, two wills. One, a will to form. One, a will to appetival possession. And these are both there as potentials, latencies in the Atma. And which way we go when we come down here will depend on whether we remember that team M. Split. The T means crucifixion, the M means substance. If we remember that we are eternally crucified on what we are, even God cannot get rid of God. That's the one impossible for God is eliminating God because he's infinite and eternal. So he has to accept that he is God. That is to say he's a power, infinite, eternal, which ideates, produces this terrific field of information. Nevertheless, he is substantial to himself. He's both T and M. So the whole of the T and continental meditation really should be based on that, although that which is offered publicly for sale as TM is not. Based on a self-hypnosis by means of a repeated mantra. 
crucifixion of oneself and one's own individuation, ideation, and of one's own appetite seizing on ideation in oneself, this is time, this is Tim, this is timidity, this is fear. But what is called in the Bible the fear of the Lord means that terrible trembling in the spirit because of the possibility of this error. I could think I'm not crucified on the truth. The truth can't get me, I'm too smart. I will outwit it. I will have 300,000 accountants in different countries. I will behave like the NGA. I will remove my typewriters. I'll put my money in another bank in another country and escape. That's not possible to do. You can get away with the thing for a short time, a medium time, or a long time, but not forever. Consequently, the T and together make this diagram. Well, the T, the cross, is inside, is inserted into the appetite. And that's exactly the relation between male and female. That is female, and that is male. I did a little painting over the fireplace of a friend of mine, and it went like that. It was a fish holding up a letter T to remind him. The moral principle is feminine. It means I accept, I take in. The form principle, called the Logos Fermaticos, is the word that is inserted into the appetite and traps the appetite in form. Everybody knows, certainly women know most clearly, that when the appetite takes on something, it has conditioned the appetite with the thing it takes on. So if it's tight trousers this season and loose trousers next season, you have to take on the fashion if you are of the fashion-worshipping nature. So this TM is a great symbol of the relation male-female. And it gives you also the word moot, which also means to change. And you reverse it because the Greeks read both ways, it's tum, which is that power in the belly, which changes. Because the appetite likes to fulfill itself, and when it's filled it wants to stop until it's empty again. So it's very, very mutable. And when we come down from the level of the outmark duality, the hidden duality in spirit itself, we come to buddhi. Now that buddh root means wake up. Imagine you are asleep with the letter B. Pronounce the letter B without exploding it. It is an M. Mm. If you compress the M very hard and suddenly release it like this, M becomes B, as in Boya. There's a lot of African names prefixed with M or N, don't they? Nkoma, Mboya. And the fundamental idea, if we take that root, there, that B is a closure and it explodes on the U, says boo, boo to the goose. And then, in the explosion, it has expressed, pressed outwards its power and divided itself from its original unity. And in the process, established a hierarchy of powers. Because when, when it explodes like that, it sets up a hierarchy because there's power within the origin and now power without thrown out. There is a process of inner outer relationship. That's Bud. That Bud means wake up. It means realize that when you express yourself in any way or whatever, by physical gesture, by words, by emotions, by thoughts, whatever, Whatever way you express, you have committed yourself to counter-attack from the rest of the universe. There is no way 
he can stop other beings attacking you if you speak. All the thoughts in your mind of your ancestors and of everybody else, when you utter a word, something I say, the whole secret is in that dot. If I say that, you immediately think, how? Criticize the dot. What is hidden in the dot? Well, my secret is hidden in the dot in my mind. Because it's a D and an O and a T. And that means it divided his own and crucified it. The moment I put down that dot, I have created a difference between so-called void space, which is really full, and form, namely the dot in the space. I created a duality with one dot. I know that. So uh, a student of philosophy will immediately enter into a discourse about the validity of positing the dot in the first place. And according to the degree of intellectual cleverness of the person, the argument will be lengthened and lengthened. Because the intellect defends itself like every other power. So the Atma is crucifixion on form and appetite together. It's a latent duality. And the Buddha is likewise a duality because the formation of the B and the D up to there bursts out into the DHI to posit a hierarchy of individuality within and of the spirit Atma. Now, if that is realized at that level to be a non-duality, and realized to be eternal, it is that, and that alone, that incarnates in successive lives. But that one never gets lost, because it is reflexive. The one that knows that his crucifixion on form is his own appetite of will to self-formation, and is awake to that fact, cannot fall. But the moment identification occurs, with anything less than that, that is, we take the reciprocal field and we take one form out and identify with it, we fall from the buddhi into the manas. Now, the manas means the appetite is negating an issuance. That means to say, your whole appetite is now cutting itself into bits, and the bits are coming out separatively, that's that terminal S, an issuance, and you have fallen to pieces in the act of making a serial account of the temporal world. You are now manas. And that manas is the level of a, a pretty good clever businessman doing time business without thinking about philosophy, without thinking about religion. He's running an efficient business by keeping count of everything. Accountancy is the key to that monastic process. And that monastic process is male. But the karma process is feminine. And every human being has the same duality that was in the Atma Buddha in the Manas Karma relationship. And so he counts, but he has also an appetite. He doesn't only do business, he also eats and prefers this food to that food. And this preference is karma, locking on the appetite. Now that lower pair represents the highest level of the average successful multimillionaire materialist. That's his highest level. So that he's always thinking downwards towards the body towards commodity production, towards the world of matter and time, and he's not thinking of anything beyond the acquisition of his material possessions. And he very carefully usually avoids thinking about the inevitability of ultimate death and what's going to happen to his 35p at his death. He doesn't think about it. If he does, he loses power in the world of counting. As soon as he starts thinking beyond the counting, he starts becoming compassionate 
reduces his prices and goes out to business. So generally he tries to avoid that. Now by identification, the successful businessman identifies with this monastic process of accurate bookkeeping. But by identification, the wife of the same man identifies with her appetible tendency to enjoy the products of his successful business. It's called natural. She puts on the fares and he gets the money to put the fares in existence. And she's identified with that. And he's identified with the counting. The relation is a non-relation. Because he is thinking about the business and the form and the bookkeeping and the Indian revenue and everything that goes with it and that and his mind is continuously occupied. I'm taking an extreme case because most people are not sufficiently monoideistic to do this. But the big millionaires can do it. The great film producers could do it. Metro Goldwyn-Mayer could do it. And for that you need monoideism. You must only think about that which you can keep account of. Most people can't do it. And as for the simply desiring to manifest the possession of wealth, that also is difficult to do because practically every woman likes to be related intelligently, sensitively to somebody. So being purely monastic, purely kamasic, is not easy. It requires tremendous diabolical dedication to do it. And most people haven't done it. But a few have. When Henry Ford got out of the militia and shot workers that struck, he was doing that very thing. And there are other cases in history which you all know about. Now you can also sink into the physical body. That is, identify yourself, not with a mental process, not with a desire process, but with a physicality as such. Now, the only cases I know of this are those unfortunate congenital idiots, which you sometimes see. I've seen them in homes, and you may have been lucky enough to see one or two. They're usually sort of little square creatures, and they are very, very solidly compact. And they don't live very long, usually about 18, 20-ish, and they die. But they are solid bodiness. And if you push them, the body reacts to maintain equilibrium. When you push them, they don't fall over. You could try it on the person next to you, if you like. If you just give a gentle push to the person next to you, you'll find that the body of that person reacts on its own. It hasn't had to ideate. It hasn't had to desire. The body likes equilibrium. The face doesn't like falling flat on. So if you try to do it, it's a very good exercise. I knew a girl once at one in this exercise. <laughs> she fell flat on her face and made a nosebleed. And that's very, very unusual. I doubt if many people here could do that. You put your arms by your side and keep your face well forward and fall flat on your face. I doubt if many of you could do it. I know that when I think about doing it, my nose tends to buzz a bit there. That's from when I did it. Nevertheless, the body has a peculiar kind of intelligence of its own, which is not your monastic intelligence that is beating your heart or digesting or failing to digest your food it is not your monastic intelligence that is circulating your blood balancing your electrolytes arranging the disposition of neurons <coughs> in your brain it is the body itself that made Nietzsche think the body is very very wise the body can defend itself even in the congenital idiot. Anybody who's worked teaching congenital deficiency knows this. They have a marvelous inbuilt body defense. The body, not the intelligent analytical power, 
Not the like dislike, certainly not the buddhic intelligence. The body itself can defend itself. Now, when you get down to identification with the body, if you carry your conscience into identification with it, you can go into a sort of funny glump in which you feel solidly obstinate. The pig is the heraldic sign of this kind of obstinacy. Have any of you ever felt so obstinate with your music with the beloved? You're not going to give in. Come hail, rain or shine, you're not going to give in. And you know perfectly well you're wrong, but you also know you're not going to give in. And you set solid on this. And you don't care if you have to go to hell, you're not giving away this point. And that's true hoggishness. That's piggery. That's shrinerite. When you get down to that level, you begin to treat everything like that as something against which you knock as you go by. If I identify with piggishness in me, and I wanted to walk over there, have a word, you get her, and this thing is in the way. Do you know what I do with it? I don't walk around it. No, no. Hit it out of the way. Have you had that mood? You know what it's like? <laughs> well, it's true piggery. Shriner eye. And it's only by identification that we get fixated in it. And we always retain the amazing power of changing our mind. Actually saying, well, it's a bit silly this, really, I mean. Here am I being piggish, and the person I'm trying to annoy has gone to the theatre. I think I'll make a cup of tea and not be piggish till he or she gets back. <laughs> you know the kind of decision that's made. I people that have a row and rush out demonstrating absolute finish in this relation. And they run out and you know what's happened? It's raining. And they run out without a coat. And they sneak back to the back door and put the coat on and then go out. Sometimes they run out and forget the car keys and they have to go back for those. Now all these things happen by only one process. The dynamic of identification. Now isn't that a terrible thing? We could be always reciprocally related to everyone in perfect harmony omniscient, sensitive, cooperative, getting along fine, not blowing each other to hell in a nuclear war. We could be. But there's more of the pigginess at this stage of evolution than is healthy for us. Now we, a handful of people, are not going to affect world governments who are pursuing control of world raw materials from having a shootout over the possession of those materials. We can't stop them. If we go and sit in the square, in any town, in the rain, in the middle of the winter, with notices saying down with nuclear bomb, they're not going to stop. So we have a problem. What are we going to do about our own process? If we believe in materiality, we're going to worry about our body being blown to pieces or fried. A replay of the Hiroshima thing. But if we know that only identification with that nails us on it, and we climb up this arm, remember our will to be compassionate and universally logological pure universal truth. And we know that that part, the Atma, Buddhi, interpenetration, spirit, Logos, is eternal. We can climb up there at the very moment that bomb explodes. The very moment that missile 
the Dharma, if you focus on that and go and we're up there. Instead of going down this line, weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth. Because a lot of people, half of them in the biblical version, too many in one field, one will be taken and another left. Two in one bed, one will be taken and another left. The population of the earth is going to be hard. And at the moment it starts, there's not much thinking time. You might have ten minutes warning. You've got to gather yourself together and go up that arm. And you've got to say, if my physicality is blown to pieces, I, the Atma Bhutti, am not. And by this process of internalization, because going up is the same thing as going inwards, by this process of internalization, you transcend all that might happen to your physical body. And if you don't do that, you'll go down here and disintegrate, rush about in the street and get shot by specially armed nuclear police, territorials, all kinds of armed forces will shoot the people that run about in panic. But the ones that understand that diagram will go straight into their center at the very moment of the impact they'll focus and they'll suddenly see something totally different from the world, from the external world. They will see light equals intelligence eternal inside themselves. And they won't care two hoots, nor will they experience the physicality of the damage, or the damage is suffered in the physicality. They'll be suffused with understanding of the whole process. And that's a very high level to reach, but it is reachable. And we have sufficient time between now and that missile to do so. But it has to become imperative for us to do so. And it begins with the will to compassion and co-ideation with everybody we know. It means mutual helpfulness, even in a small group like this. Because when we really come to this possibility, and this actualization of the possibility in ourselves, we have nothing whatever to fear. And we could all fry in this room, compassionately, sympathetically, and enlightened in the moment of the flash. How do we like to think about that? It's going to happen. You can know by your identification. If you don't know, it means you're not committed now. If you commit yourself now, and I mean now, this instant, to a reciprocal, intelligent interrelation with all the beings you know, in mutual helpfulness and compassion now, then you're ready for that well. If you say you can't know, you have sown a seed of doubt equal doubleness in you, and then you don't know. But you have sown the seed of the doubt. Can you feel your mind nursing? Shall I believe it? Shall I not believe it? And that's the two arms again of Pythagoras. You're going along. Shall I go that way or that way? Always, every instant there is a choice. Do I believe I am a spiritual intelligence or not? Am I a material body made of bits or not? It's either or. went through the whole process. Going down into the abyss, going down into hell, a simply metaphorical expression. You are exposing yourself to the idea of the possibility of total disintegration and then gathering yourself together again by remembering that you are spirit. You need fear not. You do not need to fear anything except your own tendency to identify with finitude. 
That's the only fear you need to have. And that's called the fear of the Lord. Because if you identify with yourself as separate, then you have sowed the possibility of your separation. You're falling into granularity, into bits. If you make a decision for mutual cooperation, you cannot disarm. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.